It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas, Register today at thisisils.org. The outside is something of European glory, with steeples, bells, and angels holy. The inside, old and barely swept, with years of tear and miles of debt. A sky, a painting, asks nothing but waiting. The warm go cold, the reason now old. It's all easier than surrender. Ask the Romans, Persians, the French, the Germans. All have hammered the poet till history is less believable than art. So Plato once said that poetry, it's nearer to vital truth than history. Yes, I think because truth is much more than what has happened. It's how it's happened and why it's happened. And you could say, well, look at the facts. Look at what is real and what's not real so you can determine truth. But of course, the problem is there's a difference between what is real and what is true. For example, if Jesus talked about the prodigal son or when Jesus talked about the prodigal son, we could ask Were the characters in that story real? And the answer is no. But is the story true? And the answer is yes. It's a story not written in black and white. It's actually a story written in flesh tones. Let's take a moment and talk about how both atheists and non-atheists, which I guess would be theists, in particular classical theists, is what I'm thinking, the, the people who believe in God, who have predominantly kind of run our systems and our power structures over the last several hundred years. But let's take a look at how both of them could approach truth and story in something of the same way. First of all, it's possible that the atheist may not get this. And by the way, uh, it's possible they do get this in ways that I don't even understand what they're trying to say. So forgive me if uh, if I'm not understanding your point. But it seems to me that the atheist tends to want to say, that something isn't true unless it can be proven. So in other words, we have to believe in science, things that you can measure. I only believe in science. <laughs> isn't that what the Nacho Libre guy says? Things that you can measure. That's, that's my um, Mexican-American accent there. That's it. That's all I got. So science has defined itself based on what we call sensory perception. Things that you can touch, taste, smell, hear, feel. Did I say all of them? All five of them? Touch, taste, smell, hear, and feel. Yeah. But the question is, or one of the questions is, why is sensory perception adequate for science as opposed to what we might call non-sensory perception? I mean, who decided that? Who decided touch, taste, smell, feel, hear is more important than things that fall outside of those categories? Are things that fall outside of those categories actually less real than those five senses. And yet there are even more issues because regarding sensory perception, 
there actually isn't even a definitive list. Over the years, the things that we normally think of as sensory have grown. So now we've added a bunch of sensory perceptions. Science tells us we have things like equilibrioception, which has to do with balance. I don't know why they just couldn't say balance. That'd be a lot easier. Uh, chronoception, which has to do with how things sequence out in a kind of linear movement of time. There are things like thermoception, which has to do with feeling you know, heat and cold, even in situations where you might not you know, recognize, maybe you're in the dark and you wouldn't know that you would be around something that was hot or cold, but thermoception gives you that ability to feel that. So this is really interesting. The point is, where does science land with this growing list? And in the old days, quote unquote, before some of these extrasensory things were discovered to be sensory, how would we have categorized them? You know, back then, whenever back then was, um, it fell outside of our ability to characterize and categorize things, but now they do. And so what's going on with all that? Like a few hundred years ago, before we had coined the phrase, the word thermoception, is it possible that someone was in the dark sometime and they were trying to get away from someone and the bad person was really close to them, which tripped their thermoception So they in turn got away only later to tell the story about how God made their body feel warm or that God warned them in such a way like where heat was used because this was before we understood what thermoception was. Interesting, right? What is measurable? What is quantifiable? What does science say is sensory and extra sensory? Which I which I suppose both underscores my point and does away with my point. Because in that little example that I gave where someone felt the heat and turn and ran away, only later to ascribe that whole thing to you know, God's providence or God's will or something rather than their own thermoception, I suppose it implies that anything we are feeling now may one day have a rational answer behind it. Except other questions beg to be asked, like, do we even have a uniform way of cataloging all these senses? I'm not sure that we do. And either way, what you're doing in that sense is you're putting your faith in the trajectory of science. And you're saying, yeah, right now stuff is unknown, but sooner or later we'll figure it out. But doesn't it take faith to say that one day that, that, that what's unknown will become known? And what's the difference again between that and the classic theist? who says that one day also what's unknown will be known. Everything's a mystery now. The classic theist wants to ascribe it to a deity. The classic atheist wants to ascribe it to just pure science, I guess, although it seems to me like a moving target in this particular case because of the extrasensory problem. Not that I have a lot of sympathy for the classic theists, mind you, given their track record of pettiness and power brokering and fear-mongering and obsession with sacrifice, and one could say you could see all those same things with classic atheists as, as well, but at least the classic atheist have a, has an excuse. I mean, if you don't think there's anything, if you don't think there's anything guiding this universe or any kind of deeper story, then yeah, do whatever you want. I mean, it's the classical theists who have said that and have still been petty and have still been angry and violent and sacrificial. So in light of all that, I think I'd rather be atheist and go that route. I don't know. The point is, what if truth was a blend of what is both verifiable 
and intuited. I mean, that is the way we live already anyhow. That's the way the average person goes about through their day anyhow. What if truth was something of both art and math, spirit and form? What if for us Christians, we would recognize that to read the text literally means to understand that some of the text is literally not meant to be taken literal. (laughs) I mean, poetry, come on, that's not literal. Or prophecy. One of our problems with prophecy is that we, we were told that it's about calendars and dates and maps and charts. But I don't really think that it is. And I'm not the only one who says this. There's a lot of people who think this. So it's a healthier approach to recognize that the biblical writer in terms of prophecy is talking about specific patterns of an empire that will lead to its downfall inevitably versus choosing dates and times on a calendar that a specific empire will actually fall. What if in your effort to prove literal things, you missed the point? I mean, does it matter whether Jesus was actually raised from the dead if life isn't raised from the dead in you? Does it matter whether Jesus overcame our fear of whatever it is that comes next? If we can't have faith that we can overcome whatever comes next. I have long believed that proof, it does not equate to a change of heart. What is more true? The person who has all the proof in the world but still can't love or hope? Or forgive? Or the person who is less intelligent, but who can dance and grieve and let go and try again and have belief and enjoy a party to love and to forgive? What's more true? Who is more true? I think we're compelled to remember every story, every sign, symbol, signifier, every word, every metaphor, every story is told from a particular perspective and context. And there's always biases involved. Now, the bias of the Bible is from the vantage point of the bottom rung of society, which makes it unique in terms of a lot of stuff that's been written over the years. Again, Plato, history is less believable than art. So the Bible is written from the position of those who have been oppressed, who have been conquered, but how quickly we lose sight of that. What happens if those in power read themselves into the story, not as those in power? You know, like the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Romans. What if they read themselves as a chosen people of God? What happens if the imperialists see themselves as the good guys? This is the problem, I think, by the way, not that I'm really a literature or a movie critic, but Sometimes I see this as the problem in modern-day stories that play out. For example, with a story like, off the top of my head, Star Wars. Like, I never really get the sense that Darth Vader or any of the stormtroopers, you know, any of the people a part of the Empire, actually think of themselves as good guys. And maybe they do. I mean, I'm not, I'm not well-versed in the Star Wars liturgy or in the literature, so maybe they do, but... It seems like what the story is trying to tell us is that the empire is really evil, and actually they kind of know that they're evil. And you, you see this with a growing number of stories that we watch and we read in our society where it feels like the author or the composer 
or the film producer, director, whatever, has to, the writer, they have to make the bad guy so bad to paint this contrast in order to kind of, what, get get our attention? Because, you know, we're a little bit desensitized to either violence or perversion or any number of quote-unquote negative problems. So that's interesting when you think about that and you begin to look at the sacred text because that's not necessarily the problem. That, that is a problem, but a bigger problem is when you're the bad guy and you actually think you're a good guy. I kind of think that might be why when I think about the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy movies, I just watched Dark Knight Rises last week with our, uh, our movie small group because that's what our small group does. It's not a Bible study. We watch movies. And sometimes we have intelligent discussions afterwards. Sometimes we don't. But I think what's pretty interesting about the antagonists in those three shows is that they really believe that they are doing something that will benefit humanity. And in some ways, they're trying to incite chaos from their perspective because they are actually the good guys. And maybe that's not a a good example, but the point here is, is to have some intellectual honesty when we read these stories, are we too quickly identifying with who we think are the good people in the stories of the Bible, which will lead us to a distorted understanding of what truth is? What happens if the imperialists see themselves as good? What's funny, well, it may not be funny, but... What's interesting is that for me, that's a scarier thing than the bad guy who just is bad because he's crazy. Uh, It's the bad guy who's bad because he actually thinks he's good. That's a scarier thing. I think that's what's happening in some of the stories if you read in between the narrative of our sacred text. And also, you're probably well ahead of me here That is actually how history has played out, Uh, certainly with Christianity in the West. That is the heart of Constantinianism. Once Constantine empowered Christianity, it gave us, first of all, I don't blame anyone in the 300s for looking for relief from persecution. And if I lived during that time, I would have been thrilled that Constantine would have made Christianity the state religion as well. But the downside is, is it gave us a taste of power and we've never really gotten over it. The downside is it put us in a position where we thought we were the chosen ones. So the heart of Constantinianism is that, you know, Christianity and politics are in bed together and they should rule the world. It's the heart of what happened with the Crusades. The imperialists began to read themselves as the good guys. Well, it was certainly the heart of colonialism. You know, when the colonists came to the Americas, they began to view the Americas as the promised land, as Cana. And they began to view the Native Americans then necessarily as the Canaanites, people to be conquered. And you might be saying, well, that's something that took place hundreds of years ago. I'm not sure it's really relevant anymore. But you you have to be able to see how... Our culture, our country has been playing off of this uneven power field now for hundreds of years. And a lot of people have been taken advantage of. 
It doesn't mean that every white person who's ever lived in this country is full-on culpable with regard to the demonic imperial system that we have, like we're all similar to the Joker or to Bane or something like that. What it means is that the system itself, yeah, I'd be willing to say it's demonic. I'd be willing to say that it was antithetical to anything that had to do with love in that, in that sense. So what we have to do then is just to have intellectual honesty, uh, to confess our sins, to move forward in contrition, and to go out of our way to try to retrace our steps as much as we can and to shed light on all that's happened. And it's also, I bring this up to say, even with all that, it's still happening. Like, I don't know, take a look at maybe January 6, 2021, when all the people scaled the Capitol wall. Come on, man, what do you think's going on there? It's a bunch of insurrectionists, imperialists, who think that they're the good guys. And because of that, they've read the story in a particular way, and Western Christianity is absolutely fed into that. They've read the story in a particular way that justifies their behavior. Again, to me, that's a much scarier story than someone who just goes plain crazy for the sake of being bad or evil. It's when the wires get crossed, man, that's when stuff really gets layered, nuanced, and complexified with respect to evil. This is the movement of much of Western Christianity. And I keep trying to say the heart or the essence or the movement because I don't mean to say that it's true of every single person, but of the systems and of the powers. We're essentially a Constantinian type of people, an empire. I mean, it's still going on. We, we refuse an approach that venerates both art and math, spirit and form, the verifiable and the intuited, the real and the true. Again, that's why Plato said poetry, it's actually more believable than history. There was this infamous Roman military and political figure around the turn of the first century who stood in front of a brown-skinned homeless man And he asked him, what is the truth? And the man he asked didn't really respond. The man he asked just stood there in the way. It's been 2,000 years and humanity still nervously asks, what is the truth? What is truth? And the one we ask continues to just stand there in the way. I think about it picture that right there. He's just standing in the way. He's not responding. He doesn't give a document or a list or a mathematical equation. As good as documents and lists and equations are, he doesn't do that. He just stands there like in the way. There's no other, you can't get around it. You have to go through that way. A human who is embodying love. So there's your truth, I think. Humans who embody love. Oh, and non-humans too. Because seriously, in the scope of evolution, what, 13.8 billion years, humans have only been around for a blip. Technical term for a really short time. And I think we could probably agree that love existed before Homo sapiens. So yes, truth is embodied love, whether the body is human or not. I suppose that's for another time. Believe it or not, I'm interested in stories about truth. It's why I've shifted and reshifted my thoughts about the Bible time and time again, which is funny because people have come up to me literally like 10 seconds after I'm done speaking 
And they've said, you know, I have too much respect to read the Bible like you do or to change my views. And I'm like, bro, do you realize that I have so much respect for this sacred text that I've actually been willing to let my whole life be disassembled over it? I mean, if that's not respect, what is it? I suppose you could call it uh, insanity or craziness or just someone who has been deceived, I suppose. But if it's not that, it's someone who actually has so much respect that they're willing to disassemble and reassemble things. But I'm really just interested in the stories about truth. It's why I wrote a collection of short stories. It's called The Hope and Melvin of Humanity and Other Surprising Short Stories. Maybe by the time this episode's out, it'll be in bookstores everywhere. But if not, it will be soon. You can look for it. But I was really trying to figure out what is going on with things like sacrifice and power and church authority. I mean, and you can imagine I was when I was in the middle of trying to talk about all the things like, for example, we're talking about in so many words in this podcast episode. And while I was doing it, people were getting mad at me and leaving. And while I was doing it, the larger denomination that I was a part of, growing more and more antagonistic, people from other churches uh, dialing in, watching our services only to report us to the higher-ups, um, and then eventually to be asked to leave that particular denomination. I mean, you can imagine, I really was trying to figure out what's going on here with sacrifice and power and church authority and time and relationalism and those kinds of things. And so one of the ways that I began to respond to all that was to write these little stories to help me process and to help me to work through it. Maybe it'll be a way for you to process it as well, so I invite you to check it out. But for today, the takeaway is the continual movement into this idea of don't be so quick. And this goes for me too, all of us. We would probably be better humans if we weren't so quick to assume that we have the, the bona fide truth, that we've measured it, that we understand it better than someone else. I think we would all be served well if we would just hold on to our own truth loosely and try to embody these words in such a way that they become flesh. I love something that Catherine Keller says. She's less interested in the truth of words and more interested in the truth that comes unfurling and unfolding through the entangled relationships of human beings. And it really is where the word becomes flesh. That's the thing that really matters. And that's the thing that we have to focus on and refocus on. Get as much truth as you can. But man, when it comes down to it and it's got to play out in between human beings, make sure you're elevating the person over the truth as much as you possibly can. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that you won't have to set up boundaries with people from time to time. That's super important because you have to be able to keep yourself safe and keep yourself in environments that are healthy and life-giving. I think what it means is that love is constantly compelling and impelling us to hold those boundaries loosely as well and to constantly be bouncing them up and off of self-donative, you know, non-violent, non-scapegoating love which is not easy. These can be difficult things. Now look, I know living that way invites tension into your life, but just remember the tension, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily wrong. The tension could just be evidence 
of the fact that you're in a really good story. You're right in the middle of it. So don't give up. It's, it's going somewhere. The author of the story, which I think is a combination of God and you, you at some subterranean levels that you don't even recognize, and certainly God in very non-sensory ways, as well as sensory ways. The author of the story is taking it somewhere and is not so much taking it, but is with you as the story unfolds. And if you keep um, hope alive and you keep love alive, well, then maybe the story will take you somewhere really good. So don't give up. I mean, you can give up tomorrow, right? That's always an option. But today, don't give up. All right, thanks for hanging out with me for a few minutes today. If you haven't had an opportunity to sign up for the newsletter yet, I don't know what you've been doing with your time. Go to jonathanfosteronline.com. Sign up for the newsletter. That way you can get up-to-date information about what's going on with the stuff that I create. And if you want to get crazy and go next level and subscribe to my Patreon, you can do that. Go to patreon.com forward slash Jonathan underscore Foster. I really appreciate those people who are... um, just economically getting involved. Actually, I appreciate all of you. Some of you can't get involved economically, and that's cool. All right, I hope you have a great day. Thanks so much for being with me today. Peace. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Register today at thisisils.org.